Our Bible is the written Word of God because it's all about Jesus. Our gospel is the spoken Word of God because it's all about Jesus. And Jesus is the living Word of God. And someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord. This is Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a message entitled, The Coming of the King, which looks at Jesus' second coming as outlined in Revelation 19, verses 11 to 16. This is an exciting future time because it caps off a series of judgments executed on the world by God and it signals the beginning of the end for the Antichrist, the false prophet, and ultimately the devil himself. As we rejoin Dr. Brogy, he reads from verse 12, which describes the look of Jesus, who will be returning to earth on a white horse. His eyes are a flame of fire. The Apostle John is describing here, in essence, the perfect vision of Christ. His eyes are a flame of fire. We study that in Revelation 1.14 and in Revelation 2.18, so I won't spend a lot of time on it. But you remember to the church at Thyatira, he reminded them that absolutely nothing escapes his vision. Jesus will not be able to be fooled. He is incapable of acting in an unjust fashion with his piercing vision. He will see everything that we've done. With his omniscient vision, he can perceive and he is going to discern the kind of judgment that every unbeliever will have met out. The mask, the facades will be removed. And fire, of course, as we've already studied, is a picture of the judgment of God in Scripture. God not only sees you this morning, he sees through you. He has x-ray vision. Now, we may want some opaque window over our hearts or some stained glass window in religiosity, but it is clear glass, and He sees everything about us. You cannot hide from Jesus. You can hide from your pastor. You can hide from your boss. You can hide from your spouse, but you cannot hide from God Almighty. And so, we are not surprised that in Acts 1.24, Jesus is called the cardia nostes. You can hear the word cardiac, we get our word heart, gnosis, our English word knowledge. Jesus is literally the heart knower. Why? Because he knows the hearts, as Luke writes, of all men. He knows the hearts of all men. Jesus reminded his disciples that the world would hate them, that if they hated me, they'll hate you. And that's still true because all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you want all your friends to like you, then you are a compromised person. If you live for Jesus, there will be some people who will not like you. And Jesus said, they're going to abuse you. They're going to even kill you. And he said in Matthew 10, therefore, do not fear them. For there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. With those eyes that once reflected tenderness and joy that he would cradle little children in, with those eyes that once reflected empathy when he encountered people who had zero hope in this world. He called them sheep without shepherd. With those eyes that communicated sadness as he saw Peter deny him three times. And with those eyes that communicated compassion when he forgave Peter who was crushed over his denial. With those eyes 
as his heart was broken, as people's bodies were filled with disease, or Mary Magdalene's heart was filled with seven demons, with those eyes as he literally wept over Jerusalem because of the rejection of their Messiah, with those eyes that flood tears at the tomb of Lazarus, with those same eyes, eyes of fire, he will execute his wrath. No one will be able to say, how can you judge me? You're not there to see me. No, he has omniscient vision. He can see everything. Look again further into verse 12. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, diadems, diadema. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, what we call the Septuagint, Esther, Queen Esther over Persia, is given a diadem to war. And a diadem was nothing more than an elaborate headband, about two inches wide. Sometimes there were jewels attached to it, or sometimes a type of insignia. And the excavations that have been done give us ample picture of what they actually look like. Here's one. This is of an Assyrian king wearing a diadem. This is what they look like. In this case, it was a a piece of embroidered cloth in gold, and attached to it was a bright red ribbon. Here's another relief. This shows a Persian emperor, and he wears this brightly colored diadem, a red headband with a green plume on it. Here's another one that's been excavated. And I'll not make fun of this guy because it looks like he has red lipstick on, all right? But here's the point. Understand, in the mind's eye of a first century reader, when they were a diadem, they didn't think of the kind of crowns that a 17th and 18th century English king wore. No, this was different. And understand, too, that this is not diadem. Circle the last letter of the word here in the verse. It's diadems. It's plural. This points to Messiah's authority over all the nations of the world. Why? Because when you conquered a people, you would, in essence, take their diadem, the king's diadem, just like King David did when he conquered the Amorites in 2 Samuel 12, and he wore the diadem of that Amorite king in addition to his. 160 years before Christ, Ptolemy VI, the great pharaoh of Egypt, defeated Antioch, and he wore two of those diadems to show that he was sovereign both over Egypt and over Asia. And here God is letting us know that Jesus will be sovereign over the whole earth, that he will have the name above every name. He will have many diadems on his head. On his head will be many diadems, and he will affirm before we're done because he is King of kings and Lord of lords. Now let's read all of verse 12. His eyes are a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. Describing this, the final glance of Christ's appearance in the Revelation, John tells us he has a name written on him that no one knows except himself. Now, I have dozens of commentaries on the Revelation. And what's amazing to me is how many of them attempt to tell us what the name is. <laughs> but the text says, no one knows it except himself. Even John, the beloved disciple, did not know the name. Not knowing what his name meant, I'm not obviously going to suggest what it is. But the exciting truth is, is that you will know that name someday when you get to heaven. Do you remember all the way back when we studied the church at Philadelphia? Let me dust off your minds. And I will write on him, Jesus said. I will write on him 
the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, in my new name, these people are given a wonderful promise that they will be identified as the people of God forever. I'll write the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, in my new name. Three names for the Creator, the city, and God's Christ. Listen, if I own some object that's important to me and I don't want to lose it, you know what I do? I write my name on it so that I identify it as mine. And by the way, as we will study next time, this is not the biblical basis for a tattoo. But just know that God, when He writes these names on you, He is affirming that you are special. The Father will write His name. Why? Because He's establishing ownership, that He has redeemed you forever. He will write the name of His city. We will study in great detail the New Jerusalem. That's where people die and go today. They go to the Father's house to paradise the New Jerusalem. Someday, that will become the capital city of a brand new earth. And it's a place where we will spend eternity. But Jesus said also, he will write his name, a name that no one knows, but he will write it on you someday if you know Jesus. Why? Because he's affirming that you are very special to him. Now, in the Old Testament, on occasion, before Bethlehem, before the incarnation, Jesus would come, and he would come as the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord was no ordinary angel. That angel was called Yahweh. And the New Testament, his name is Yeshua, or in English, Jesus, which really describes his redemptive ministry, that he is indeed salvation. But in heaven, he will have his new name that will mark you. Look further at verse 13. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now, some assume that this is Jesus' blood on the robe, but it's not. All you have to do is let Scripture interpret Scripture, and you will find that that's an impossible interpretation. Now, again, let me just say parenthetically here, there are people who reject the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Christ, and you cannot be too careful in our day. There's more than one pastor I've met who did not want to be fired, did not want to be thrown out of his church, so he will use the language of historic Christianity, but again, a different dictionary. And that's how a false teacher comes. Paul says Satan comes like an angel of light, and if that's the way he comes, so don't his ministers. And so you need to discern that this is not some spiritual resurrection. This is a physical resurrection from the dead. But the fact that Jesus physically was raised from the dead, understand his body is different than it was when he walked here upon the earth. There's no blood in his body. Had there been blood in his hands and his feet in that gaping hole that he invited Thomas to put his fist in, you would have seen it all over the ground. But there's no blood in his body. Now, the wounds are there. We sing it, rich wounds yet visible above. That's a great phrase in that hymn because it expresses biblical truth. But clearly, it is a different kind of body. Luke says that Jesus said, it's a body of flesh and bones, but there's no blood in this body. It's a body that can literally actually go through walls. It's a body that can suddenly appear and suddenly disappear. Someday you'll get a body like that. And there on that beach, so he would know he, he was not some ghost, he literally actually ate fish. It's kind of exciting. We'll be able to eat in heaven and never get fat, huh? He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Whose blood? 
the blood of His enemies. It's not His blood. Remember, the context of this phrase is not redemption, it is judgment. And again, letting Scripture interpret Scripture right out in the margin next to this verse, if you will, Isaiah 63, 2 and 4. Isaiah 63, 2 and 4. The language of Isaiah the prophet, as he looked at, looks down the corridors of time to the second coming, which is the context of this chapter, he graphically predicts that when Messiah comes the second time, he will establish his kingdom, and in doing so, he will have to avenge his enemies. Listen to his words. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress, the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their blood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment, for the day of vengeance was in my heart. A wine press was an elevated platform that was hollowed out, and you'd put the grapes on it, and you'd step on it in bare feet, not with shoes on. You didn't want to crush the seeds and ruin the flavor of the grapes. And then it would flow down into a trough. And as you stood there in the wine press and you were crushing the grapes, yes, it would get on your garments. And here the wine press of God's wrath, imagery we've already seen in the Revelation, is a picture of God's wrath. Here's actually a, a video of a first century wine press. There was some water in it. It just rained. And I just kind of pushed it out and down the trough it went into the catch bowl. And so God is giving us here a picture where he will indeed bring his wrath and these are the blood of his enemies. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. This is not his blood. He has none now. This is the blood of his foes. Simply said, this scene portrays the awful day of judgment that is coming. And I know that is a shock. It stuns and offends some people that God is literally actually going to come in his wrath. And they fail to recognize that God describes those who are accountable, who have reached a point of accountability, that they are called in Romans 5, enemies of God. Paul says, by nature, we are children of wrath. Now, God has privileged me to share the gospel with thousands and thousands of people since I've been saved. And sometimes I will hear irreverently someone say, well, you know, me and the man upstairs, you know, we've got this agreement. And they so irreverently refer to God. You know, God's not going to judge me. He may judge Hitler, but he won't judge me. And the truth of the fact is that without Jesus, the Bible says we are storing up wrath for the day of wrath. And someday it will be unstopped like a great tsunami, and it will come upon the unbelieving peoples of this world. Paul, when he was reasoning with the Athenians, Athenians up there in Mars Hill, is exhorting them to repent. Why? Because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. All you have to read is the Gospels, and God affirms through Christ. Jesus said more about hell than he said about heaven. All you need to do is read the writings of the Apostle Paul, virtually any book in the Old Testament, and it speaks of God not only as a God of love, but as a God of wrath. He is clothed, look at verse 13, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now remember, John wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John in the Revelation, right? 
So he gave us those books, five books in the New Testament. And we're introduced to this title, the Word of God, in his opening phrases of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he says a few verses later, and the Word became flesh and dwelt. He tabernacled among us, and we saw his glory, glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word of God is one of the familiar names to the people of God for the Son of God. When you speak your words, the mouth speaks what's in the heart, Jesus said, your words reveal your, your heart, your mind. Even so, the Father reveals Himself to us through the living Word, through the incarnate Word. He is described like the Father as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet, because Jesus is indeed the Word of God. He was the Father's agent in creation, the New Testament affirms. Let us make man in our image. Every member of the Godhead is involved and credited with the creation of the world. Who made the world? God the Father did, God the Son did, and God the Spirit did. All three are credited, not just by the plural pronoun, but by other passages throughout the Scripture. But Jesus is affirmed that God brought nothing into existence except by Him. And He not only created the world, He is the agent as the Word of God in saving people and ultimately judging those who are lost. He will speak a word, and His enemies will pass away. You don't want to miss next time. Our Bible is the written Word of God because it's all about Jesus. Our gospel is the spoken Word of God, because it's all about Jesus. And Jesus is the living Word of God, and someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord. Now, that's the appearance of our coming King. Secondly, if you're taking notes, I want you to think about the armies of our coming King. Not just His appearance, but let's think for a moment about the armies of our coming King. Look now, if you will, in verse 14. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following Him on white horses. Now, a lot of people get a little balled up concerning the return of Christ because they fail to understand that it is in two phases. Now, the Old Testament prophets didn't understand this. It was there in typology, but it was hidden. But it is not until the New Testament that God reveals both the rapture and the second coming of Christ. Listen to what Paul says of the rapture in 1 Corinthians 15. The word rapture Rapto in Latin, raptora, it's harpazo in Greek, it means to catch up. People say, well, the word rapture is not found in the Bible. Well, neither is the word trinity, but the doctrine of the trinity is affirmed in God's Word that there's one God who exists in three persons. I don't care if you call it the rapture, the catching up, the rapto, the raptor, call it what you want, but it was hidden in the Old Testament. Paul said, behold, I tell you a mystery, we will not all sleep. That is, we're not all die in the traditional way, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Hey, friends, this is when our salvation is going to be completed, when in Paul's words, he will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of his power that he has to subject all things even to himself. John echoes the same truth in 1 John 3. Beloved, 
Now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. We will not be as Him. That's Satan's ploy, you know, eat of the fruit and you can be like God. We won't be as Him in that sense, but we'll be like Him and that we will receive a body like His. Our sin nature will be eternally shed. We will be sealed forever and ever and ever in a resurrection body never to fall again. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we shall be changed. Now, unfortunately, the word mystery is kind of like our English word hope. In, in our day, it communicates a different thought in the 21st century, even different from it did in the 17th century, and certainly far different than it did in the first century. The word hope today is a very uh, less than definitive word. Well, I hope it doesn't rain this week for Vacation Bible School. No, the word hope, elpidos in Greek, refers to something that is sure and certain and will definitely happen in the future. And so it is with this word, mystery. Mysterion speaks of something that was once hidden, a sacred secret of sorts, but is now revealed, now has been made plain. It was once obscure, but it is now plain. And so, even if you didn't know a word of Greek, you could figure that out just by reading New Testament passages that deal with the subject of the mystery. Let me read to you Ephesians 3. The Apostle Paul writes that by revelation, there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote in, before in brief. And then he articulates what the mystery is. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so this new truth, this mystery, is not something that is mysterious. It's a sacred secret that has now been revealed. Not that Gentiles could be saved. That was plainly taught in the Old Testament. In fact, the Jews' responsibility was to be a light to the Gentiles. But what was covered and hidden was that God would bring Jew and Gentile together into one body with the dividing wall gone where there are brothers and sisters in Christ. Even so, Paul is reminding us here of this mystery concerning the rapture. Let me read it again. Behold, I tell you, a mystery. It was there in the Old Testament. It was given by typology and men like Enoch, but it's not explained until you come to the New Testament. Jesus doesn't mention it until the upper room. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am in heaven, there you may be also. Behold, I tell you, a mystery. We will not all sleep but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Now understand the word trumpet in the Bible is not simply a musical instrument. In fact, it was not primarily used for musical purposes in Bible times. It was used for purposes of announcements. And as you read the Scripture, as this next slide shows, we are reminded that when a trumpet was sounded, it was a reminder that God was getting ready to intervene. It was kind of like God's alarm clock. And so God would sound a trumpet according to Leviticus to call the people to work 
or to call the people from work. He would sound a trumpet to call the people to come and worship him as in Numbers 10. He would sound a trumpet as a word of warning that the enemy was coming. He would sound a trumpet to call the troops in the battle, or he would sound another trumpet to call the people from war. And as Christians, we are waiting for a very special trumpet sound. It's called the trumpet of God in 1 Thessalonians 4. And in 1 Corinthians 15, it's called the last trumpet. Those are two very important trumpet passages concerning the rapture of the church. And just like the Jews in the Apostle Paul's day, the Roman army would first be called by one particular trumpet. It was called the first trumpet. Josephus, in his book, The Wars of the Jews, mentions the first trumpet, and he also mentions the last trumpet, a deeper sounding tone where the troops were called back from the battlefield. Listen, Jesus is going to sound the last trumpet. Right now, we are in a spiritual war. We wage war not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. But the trumpet will sound, and we are going to be called home. Now, there's another trumpet that Jesus mentions concerning not the rapture, but the second coming, and it's called a great trumpet. And so some people think, oh, there's this great trumpet, there's this last trumpet. And since the great trumpet happens at the end of the tribulation, it must mean, therefore, that Christians will go through the great tribulation. No, that's not what it teaches. Not to mention the trumpet called the great trumpet is not even the last trumpet sound in Scripture. In fact, trumpets will be sound all the way through the thousand-year reign of Christ, as the Old Testament prophets affirm, and as we will discuss when we come to the 20th chapter. The trumpet of the rapture is the last trumpet. And remember when Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians 15, in chapter 14, he has just spoken of a trumpet. Of course, in the context, he's talking about people who are speaking in tongues, And by the way, the tongues of the New Testament are so far different than the gibberish that is spoken today. It's no miracle today, and you depreciate the work of God the Spirit when you try to equate the two. The tongues of today are no different from the tongues that were spoken by pagan cults in the second and third century before Christ. No, there's only one passage in all the Bible where tongues are elucidated. It's Acts chapter 2, and they were real languages. But Paul said, if God gave you the miraculous ability to speak a language that you'd never learned, and he did this so that revelation before the Bible was completed could be given, and then someone didn't interpret the tongue, he says, well, for if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for the battle? Listen, there's a certain sound that called you to the battle. There's another sound that would call you out of the battle. And of course, he doesn't even explain it to these Greeks because they understood the context. And so when he speaks here of the last trumpet, they're being called from the battle and we are going to be brought home to be at rest with the Lord. That's what we have to look forward to. It is a great day. What a great day indeed. But until that day, we are to be on the alert, watching for the signs of that return. To listen again to today's message entitled, The Coming of the King, use the Search the Scriptures app for mobile devices, or visit our website at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and ask for program REV55. 
As the COVID vaccine begins to roll out around the world, it's looking better and better for international travel. As such, we're making plans for two trips to Israel in late September 2021 and in early October. Right now, we're just in the early stages, but if you'd like to be kept informed about developments, register online at searchthescriptures.org Israel. The Bible comes alive for those who attend the Search the Scriptures trip to Israel as Dr. Brogy gives insights into the many locations throughout the Middle East. Again, the site to sign up for more information is searchthescriptures.org Israel. Tomorrow, the conclusion of the coming of the King. Join us then as we search the Scriptures. <music> 